Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to the Cowan Future Health Podcast. Uh, today's podcast is part of a monthly series that continues Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare technology and consumerism is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And in this episode, we take a look back at this year's sixth annual Cowan Future Health Conference, which was held virtually this past June, where we hosted a number of panels discussing a wide range of topics, many related to digital health. And joining me to discuss the conference is Steve Blumenfield, Head of Strategy and Innovation for Health and Benefits North America at Willis Towers Watson. There he helps develop high potential new practice areas and curates the digital health and benefit landscape for clients. As part of his role, Steve works closely with VC firms, startups, and leading global employers. He's also the host of Cure for the Common Co podcast, in which he interviews innovators, the likes of which we will be discussing today. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us. Hey, Charles. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And hi, everybody. Obviously, there's a lot for us to cover. Uh, but before we begin, uh, I know you joined us for the conference and, you know, listened in to many of the yeah. panels. Uh, you, you know, maybe provide some of your overall takeaways uh, from this year. Yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating, engaging. It, it's always interesting to listen to these things um, remotely, right? I, I love being in the conference in person because th there's something about that connection. But the, the conference actually was was pretty well done and entertaining uh, and really informative. I had takeaways from each of the sessions. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to think about the spaces that have become hot and the impact collectively you see that digital health virtual care is having on all of caregiving all of healthcare how we think about health and and well-being in this country not just at the consumer level but at the practitioner level and at the employer level that's you know our clients are employers so it's just fascinating when you see a conference like this to kind of step back and think about how far we've come uh, and covid was certainly an accelerant that's a theme i think we'll talk about today but a lot of the stuff has been has been slowly moving along and it's become pretty much mainstream. So we can get into the specifics, but high level, those are some of the takeaways I had from the conference overall. Yeah, no, and, I, and I, I would agree with you there. And I, I know that you've joined us in the past uh, in person as well. So you've kind of seen how, uh, you know, this conference has moved over time. So, you know, let's kind of jump in here. Um, you know, maybe the first panel I want to touch on is uh, behavioral health. Uh, and, and this mm -hmm. is a panel I hosted with uh, uh, the Chief Operating Officer of Talkspace and the CEO of OnTrack. Um, you know, maybe start there and, you know, what were some of your key takeaways uh, from the behavioral telehealth panel? Well, that's an area that's uh, a passion of mine. It's a critically important area and has been for a, a long, long, long time. And I think it's... Um, yeah, it's just it's just massively important. So there were two takeaways I had from that session, and love to hear yours as well. Uh, the first one that struck me was about the importance of engaging the entire person, how critically important that is when it comes to chronic conditions. So if someone's got diabetes, heart disease, MSK, whatever the condition might be, it's one thing to treat them physically, but there's a level at which um, the treatment can fall down unless you engage someone around the mental health issues that may crop up, particularly in, particularly in times of crisis. So mental health care support is not only key, 
that can actually yield a substantial return. And we've seen that as companies um, have added mental health kind of one by one in some of these metabolic you know, syndrome type of uh, solutions. Uh, and in other solutions as well, we see mental health as the next level, as well as the next thing to be added to their core solutions, as well as freestanding. But to hear, you know, on track talk about that as being kind of key to what they deliver, I think that was really insightful. How to get people to to get past those sticking points in the community by by addressing the whole person and the mind as part of that. And the second big takeaway I had, Charles, was the the use of big data. And I, you know, anytime uh, anytime the term big data or AI gets used, uh, my back goes up because it's they're so overused. But what really intrigued me was uh, that we're actually at a point now where we could find digital, which includes virtual in my book, always, whenever I say digital, um, actually might move from the perception of being non-inferior as the goal to being superior um, to traditional care. And that doesn't mean that, that it would replace traditional care. What it does mean is it's very hard to get data longitudinally to assess whether or not uh, a member, a, per, a patient, is getting better from their mental health care support. But these tools actually allow people to be taking things like a, you know, a GAD7 or a PHQ9 um, over time uh, or look for other cues as to how they're improving. It allows for the AI and, and, and a practice a practitioner to look back collectively and assess how the provider is doing. So we're getting to the point now where measurement could be actually become meaningful and become useful to the member, but also to the provider. And add that to the fact that the provider can has left less time doing administrative tasks because that's provided by the by the um, platform they're using. Um, this this can actually be a pathway to improve care in some cases. Is that something that employers are demanding? Or is this still something kind of new that employers are just starting to realize, hey, we, we now have access to more information and we can actually quantify more of, uh, of the outcomes to, to better sense that are we really getting a return uh, for the investments for our members? Well, absolutely, they want this. To some degree, there's a conditioned response to um, quotes of ROI. You know, my, my solution will save you you know, three times what you pay for it. And I think I've said before in our discussions, if you could add up all of the savings that all of these solutions have, then healthcare would be a profit center. But in, in reality, um, there's always challenges with those claims, but we actually are, the employers in general and consultants like Wells Towers Watson are very eager to get our hands on good data so we can assess quality and we can compare the solutions. That That's extremely important. Uh, and the more we can do that, the more we can track the claims, the more we can pick the right solutions. It, it all gets better. It's, it's a virtuous cycle. So yes, employers are eager for that, but we've been disappointed. Um, so we're, we're, we're hopeful. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, your first point, you were talking about engagement and this idea of whole person engagement. Mm. Sounds like something that clearly you would expect to resonate with employers as well. Uh, you know, yeah. what's the best way that employers are are measuring the engagement of their employees, you know, to a benefit such as behavioral. How, how do they how do they get a sense that people are actively using it, or 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 maybe a better way to ask it is, are you finding them they're actually pushing it now, um, getting mm. people to try to use it to engage? Right. Well, what one of the uh, positive side effects of what we've all been through for the last year and a half is is uh, mental health, which already had a spotlight on it. Uh, really just 
massively being pushed to the front and employers trying to make every resource available to their people and companies that that had uh, any kind of mental health support, making that available as part of their package of solutions and expanding that. So everyone needs the help. So employers have been promoting the heck out of this. Uh, at, at the at the early days of the of the pandemic, you know, we talked to some of our clients, and you know, one of them on 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 the Cure for the Common Co was mentioning how the first thing that they did was send send out constant emails and communications to their to their managers and to their people about the the EAP and behavioral health resources. The the apps that they had provided, the the vendors that they had provided, because people needed that so badly. So absolutely deliver. Um, here's what you already have. Please take advantage of it. And companies have been extremely eager to, to take on additional solutions. So um, yes, uh, there's been a lot of a lot of um, hiring of new vendors and and looking at at mental health support available. And yes, communicating the heck out of that. In terms of the part of your question about measuring engagement, well, there are reports that these companies provide. If it's a digital tool or virtual tool, you, you get you, you can get reporting on, on utilization, which you hope will go up over time. But what really you, you hope happens um, in addition to those kinds of measures, and by the way, in mental health, that, that's good, that's actually great because we know that our folks need the help so badly. It'd be wonderful to also get things like, like seeing fewer out-of-network claims over time seeing fewer ER, ER visits associated with mental health issues. So those are some of the ways that employers think about uh, measuring and evaluating these solutions. So maybe, you know, maybe uh, we can move on to the next panel because I think it's related and it gets to your earlier point about um, engaging the whole person, which was our chronic care management panel. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this one, you know, we hosted with uh, Omada Health and WellDoc. Uh, maybe, you know, what were some conclusions you took away from this panel? Yeah, so another interesting panel, you know, both both in the diabetes uh, care space and clearly not just diabetes, but, you know, metabolic syndrome and other chronic conditions related. And in fact, we know Amada has has done things like acquire Fizera. So there's MSK and the mental health solutions. So don't want to, not, not attempting to, um, to bucket them into too small of a, of a category. But, um, you know, Essentially, they both started out in that space, and it's just amazing to see how that space has grown. Sean's comment, Sean from from Omada, the co-founder from Omada, um, talking about the competition among platforms and how much how much room really is there for how many platforms was a question that that was raised in the in the discussion, and I loved Sean's reframing of that, which is if you look at all of the successful platforms that we have seen in that space. That they they barely even move the needle compared to the number the number of people getting care outside of platforms. So you know I think he used the example of you know you've got Geisinger over here and you've got you know he named a bunch of health systems and said we don't think about there being too many of those platforms. So we've got plenty of room to grow. So and I think that's I think that's right and that's just just U.S. based right to say nothing about outside the U.S. Uh, and I really actually loved the the comment from um, from WellDoc. Uh, something like digital had been the backup quarterback. And to, again, yeah. to me, digital and virtual are, are they're, they're, they come, they go together. But you know, the, the, the backup quarterback would, maybe if they're lucky, get off the bench for a play or two during the game. Um, but suddenly they're going to be maybe a starter and the place to start with and that might even steer you to the care. I just love that notion that if the tools can mature to the point where they're not looking to replace, but they've got a meaningful role at the right point in care for the right people. 
And I'll throw throw one more out there, which is uh, there was a reference to an A16Z company. So it, it may have been Levels as the company, which is a consumer-oriented health and well-being play where they use continuous glucose monitoring, CGM, and that, that topic had come up. People who are not being treated for diabetes are wearing that. And it act because just by being able to continuously monitor what they eat and the effect on their body, they are dramatically improving their health and losing weight. So just a just a fascinating notion of the more data we have that's meaningful to us in real time, the more we'll we'll do with that. So I thought I thought it was a very exciting panel. Yeah. You know, and I agree with all of that. Uh, you know, w- one of the things that came up I thought was interesting was this, you know, both talked about this idea of digital first approach. Uh, mm. and, you know, and it kind of came up often. You know, it's something obviously that's top of mind when, you know, a lot of companies in this space talk about digital health. You know, what do you, what do employers though need uh, to have in place to really make a digital first kind of environment work properly? Yeah, yeah. Well, first off, I would say employers tend to think of the term virtual first, because even though we talk about them hand in glove, uh, digital just feels like it's only on the phone, right, as opposed to virtual. So employers, that the term we tend to use is virtual first. But um, for I, I think there's two pieces. Part of that is just time, Charles. These are still relatively new solutions. Clearly, COVID was an accelerant in getting it out there. So now a lot of employers are asking about their virtual care strategy and their digital strategy. So that, that's part of it. The second actually, I think, has to do with, uh, with the doctors getting comfortable, which COVID also helped, right? Because many clinicians, uh, therapists or, or uh, doctors or nurses couldn't practice unless they were virtual. And then of course, there's the digital supports for those. So um, a lot of employers are concerned. They don't, they don't wanna break that doctor-patient relationship in general, there's even the assumption that most people have a doctor-patient relationship. Some people don't. A lot of people don't, actually. Um, and employers don't want to force people in a certain direction in general. But the more the clinicians want to do this, the more that you see positive results, the more employers want to make this available. And I think I think that that's the, those are the enablers, and I think they're actually off to a good start. And you mentioned providers there. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of you know, a lot of these solutions, particularly chronic care management and, you know, telehealth, they're all, they've all generally been, or at least they've initially started out targeting employers, um, mm-hmm. uh, sell, selling into the employer market, uh, obviously, because employers tend to be willing to try new things, uh, right. experiment more, you know, we're, we're now because of the pandemic, you know, physicians, providers have kind of come around and realized, hey, we can practice virtually, we can take advantage of these tools. You know, down the road, do you, do you ultimately think chronic care management is something that should be you know, still driven by the employer? Or, or is this something that, you know, probably ends up being driven by the physician and, and then employers mm-hmm. kind of just, you know, tag along here, uh, you know, just providing overall health benefits? Yeah, boy, that is such a, such a, a fascinating question to ponder, Charles. Uh, I, I think if, if we all had the ideal environment, the consumer would know where to go and just go there and the provider would have every tool available and it would all be covered uh, regardless of the the plan someone was in and they would just get the best care it just doesn't seem to work that way there's such variability among the carriers and who they have relationships with and then who's in network and whether those physicians or you know those providers actually have the right tools or they or or the tools they use are actually the ones that are the best quality or best fit for the patient. So I, I think in the foreseeable future, 
unless we change our model dramatically, like you know, a government-sponsored plan that, that takes out the employer's hands, every employer plan sponsor, at least if they're self-insured, has an interest in trying to help their population do better. So I, I think in the in as far as I can see out there, we're going to continue to see employers who who want to do it for financial reasons that we just talked about, and because they want their people healthy and they would like them to to be engaged and and help them to deal with their issues. So as long as they're in the benefits game and they're paying for it and it's their people that they care about, uh, they're going to want to keep being engaged. But ultimately, you know, the, it should also rest on the physician and on the consumer. Yeah, you know. I want to go back to you know you brought the analogy I think it was Anand over at WellDoc about the backup quarterback. Uh, yeah. Digital health is, you know, do, do you find that um, employers see that as well? You know, that do they mm. recognize that hey you know even though we've been providing these services it wasn't so much that we expected them to be sort of a mainstay of our benefits package. Has that kind of shifted in the tone when you when you speak with employers now that when they look at their overall benefits offering uh, of which, you know, it's more than just a, you know, digital, right? So there's a, a virtual, right. right? There's a whole a slew of services yeah. provided. Are, are these, are, are, is there a shift in sort of how they think of the importance of various pieces? Yeah, I, I do think there has been a shift, but I, I've got a lot of caveats around this. So in general, there, there is now acceptance of virtual and digital that there wasn't before. And I think COVID had a lot to do with that. It's like, you know, the people who were sitting back saying, this doesn't work, this can't work, a doctor has to touch someone, realized, wow, I actually practiced for, you know, a year without touching anyone. And it actually worked out really well. And when we had to, we, we were in contact, but, but uh, gee, that, that changed my perspective on things. So, and the employers saw that. And they, many of the people who were making the buying decisions had to have care of the family, family, uh, family members who had to have care as well. So there, uh, it's certainly come up. A lot of our clients are asking, do they have the right virtual strategy, the right digital strategy? What should they do? And we help them, we help them through that discussion. So, so I, I do think that's, um, I think that has arrived to some degree. But the caveat is that you see one employer, you see one employer, and there's a very big difference between those at the cutting edge, you know, the, the early adopters. Then there are even some late adopters yeah. and then to the laggards. And I'm just using the, uh, I don't, I'm not labeling, I'm, I'm using the innovation uh, curve there to, 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 um, to identify these segments. Um, we're definitely seeing the mainstreaming of it, but there are still companies that are not there, but I'd say it's definitely mainstreamed. Yeah, and that, and that makes sense. And that's, that's a great analogy to kind of describe where we're at. So, you know, I, I think the next panel would love to discuss uh, is the women's health and caregiving panel that uh, we hosted, uh, which brought a pretty diverse range of perspectives. Uh, we had uh, Carrot, which is a fertility company, uh, Outlet, which makes uh, monitoring devices for uh, infants, and, and Wealthy, which provides, you know, concierge uh, services for finding care or navigating care, really. A pretty wide, diverse area uh, kind of focused in an area with, you know, kind of largely um, impacts women uh, to a large extent, uh, you know, maybe give us some of your key takeaways from that panel. Well, the first, the first thing that I experienced was excitement, actually, at the number of solutions going after these needs, because it's really been an underserved area. So the needs of families, um, the needs of, of women, um, underserved populations, 
particularly the, you know, the women, women and families, which were represented by that, that panel, and, and the people that are being cared for that haven't always been in the center of the benefits discussion, and that employers uh, asked, you know, it, it seemed like you had to deal with that on your own as, as an employee. Um, but the increasing recognition of the importance of addressing those needs was exciting. And there's so many solutions that have popped up in those spaces. And COVID helped pave the way for companies to see just how important this is and to want to provide additional solutions. Uh, they know that suddenly the people who are making the decisions are also dealing with caregiving off the side of their desk. And, and you know, we realize how important it is for people to be engaged to have some help in these areas. One of the saddest things I heard from that was, was the quote from, from Lindsay, the, uh, the CEO of Wealthy. I don't I won't get the numbers right, but talking about the massive number of women executives who left the workforce due to home and family needs. And you know, there's just a simple fact that companies need, the, need this talent and uh, it's just a terrible thing that circumstances and the lack of ability to, to meet those needs outside of the box that has, has typically been that benefits box is making people make decisions to leave the workforce. That's a real employer issue. And, and, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and certainly COVID probably exacerbated it, but we've definitely seen a change you know, in this regards, you know, I'd say maybe over the last five plus years. You know what? What have you seen that's changed in the market that has enabled this uh, kind yeah. of focus onto this area, kind of emerge and grow? Right? Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right, Charles. It has definitely emerged. Each of these companies has been around for you know, several years, so it's been building. In fact, uh, caregiving, as an example, was a rising need, which we saw and put at the top of our list near the top of our list uh, prior to COVID, but really got pushed over you know, during COVID. And, and the other areas, you know, uh, um, family care, uh, maternity support were definitely at, at near the top of that list all, already. But COVID was again, an accelerant, a massive accelerant. Uh, more generally, I would say that the trend towards uh, recognition of the need for increased gender diversity at companies and the blurring of work and life roles were the things that have been pushing us in that direction. And again, COVID kind of pushed us over the edge. Yeah, and you just mentioned it there. You know, it certainly seems like one area that you know, hasn't got enough attention over la until the last few years has been around diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Certainly beyond the social and moral uh, importance of this. What is the business case you hear most from employers when they seek solutions to address, you know, to be able to better serve these uh, populations? Yeah, wow. It's such a tough one. There's a lot of interest, but not a lot of solutions, frankly, out there today, because there's there's a need for community involvement. There's a need to understand the data down to the level of individual communities. And um, and some of these solutions are outside of the benefit space. You know, if someone lives in a food desert, you know, is it your role as an employer to provide um, food um, or to is there something fundamental about that community? And how do you even do that? If, if that is your role, if that's what you decide is your role, do you have the means to do it yourself? Or is that something that has to be done through community organizations? So some of that stuff's actually being worked out. There are entrepreneurs looking at those things. Um, but we see, we see it play out in general in terms of underserved populations. Uh, for many companies, they may call it diversity and inclusion, but for some, there may be geographies where that there actually is not a lot of diversity, but there is a lack of inclusion in terms of opportunity, education, capability, um, or luck, where, of where someone was born or, or where they happen to live. With a tight labor market, 
companies realize that the people under their care um, need to be able to take care of their health or family's health. And if they don't, that's going to be an expense for the employer. But more importantly, it's going to affect their ability to retain those people, for those people to actually, you know, be healthy, productive, happy contributors to uh, to those companies and society. So there's cost implications from not doing the right thing. Um, but there's also that increased desire to do the right thing. I do think one of, one of the other positive outcomes of the pandemic is we're all spending a little more time thinking about each other and our role in helping each other. You know, and when we think about, um, you know, uh, employers looking to, you know, particularly getting women back into the workforce, uh, reintegrating back into the workforce, uh, you know, all, all these kind of services are, are tools to enable that. Um, do, do you see uh, employers really looking at uh, these as not only retention tools, but uh, really employ to attract employees. Uh, you know, how, how much of it when when you're speaking with employers that in this kind of modern environment that we're in, uh, if you want to attract the top talent, you know, these are the types of services that employees want to see. Whether they use them or not, is that this is a type right. of workplace that offers these services to you know, even if I don't, if I, even if I don't partake in them. Yeah, Charles, that's a really uh, insightful observation. I would say uh, yes, and there's evidence for that. You know, we, we tend to look to the West Coast. We tend to look to Silicon Valley to see what those companies are doing. And those are the ones that have the tend to have the, the hottest talent market they're trying to attract. And they and perks and uh, and benefits that are more leading edge tend to be in high demand there. I think it's because the work for talent is playing out in terms of benefits. And then we see some of that stuff come kind of, some of it succeeds and some doesn't succeed in making its way to the to the rest of the, the industries. But that's just one example that proves your point um, that it is an attraction and retention tool. We've got you know a company that, that spoke at our virtual conference um, with me. I, I, I believe it's part of, uh, I think it was Dow Jones, uh, Kim Duck made, made the reference that they, publish their benefits because they they believe and that they publish it um, on Instagram because they believe this is an, this is an attraction tool if you've got a good set of, of benefits that people really want they'll want to work for you so uh, I, yeah Charles you're on to something there it, it kind of gets to the idea that you know because I and this is obviously a, a topic kind of separate from what we've been speaking about in general but you know there's that ongoing debate about whether employers should be offering health benefits. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, the point that you're making is there, there really is still a, a strong business case you know, for employers to, to provide it because it helps differentiate them. Yeah, it's fascinating because um, the question one is, do you want to be in the game? Right. Or do you want to go do something like take advantage of of ICRA and and have a little bit more of a defined contribution approach, you know, it's a, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but, but let's just call it that. Um, and, and more limit your role and put it in the hands of the consumer, or do you want to be providing these benefits? And, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out over the next several years. Certainly um, COVID changed what might've been a different year for, for those types of questions as, as we all kind of just, you know, held our breath and tried to get through it. So assuming that the employer wants to continue to provide benefits, well, at that point, it becomes part of your talent strategy. And what are you gonna to do to attract and retain your type of people? Now, not every industry has the same need for that talent strategy to be robust and, and 
uh, attracting the same level of people at with the same degree of benefits. You know, you could have a workforce where if you churn through workers, that's part of the the workforce design, right? Not good or bad. That's just a it's just a different approach. Um, and then you also mentioned should should employers be in the game? Well, as long as there's mandates that require some level of activity, then the question is how do you optimize that for yourself? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that that's really helpful, and it's pretty interesting how we'll see this play out. Um, you know, maybe the last uh, panel I want to touch on, uh, you know, was a fireside chat that was hosted by my colleague Gary Taylor uh, with Anthem's chief digital officer uh, Rajiv uh, Renanke, uh, who obviously spent a lot of time uh, in industry uh, before going into uh, to Anthem. You, you know. When you, what did you find kind of most interesting from this discussion? Because I, I thought he brought a, a pretty interesting kind of perspective on sort of where the role of, you know, of Anthem, I guess, in particular, but kind of if you can think more broadly what the, what the, what the role of the payer is uh, in, yeah. this, in this market. But his enthusiasm was contagious. It was, it was good to listen to him on this. And <laughs> I, I felt a little bit like, like I was... Uh, listening to someone evangelize about what they could do, which is great. That's exactly what you want to have a leader do. Um, I was really surprised, actually, because I had really thought about the individual pieces that came together at the, the level of um, tools and platform commitment that they're making that they believe can do better for the provision of care um, for outcomes and and for their, the, the comp obviously for Anthem and the Blues uh, more broadly. But, you know, investments like uh, a universal EMR that could be an industry standard that they would share with others with real-time data, which would you know just be amazing. Uh, their collaboration with other insurers on a blockchain utility, their vision for their Sydney app to be a consumer doorway with lots of pathways to different types of care based on need and condition management through telemed vendors and other types of vendors, and even the vision of going beyond health. So I love the I love kind of the how big and bold the vision was and the where they're putting their money behind that. And, you know, I, I think Anthem, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I thought it was a very engaging conversation and, uh, you know, you know, very excited to see what they what they do with this. You know, but when you look in the past, right, uh, mm -hmm. I, I guess United has been the most, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, adventurous into this field in, in a, you know, building out capabilities and assets. Uh, you know, Anthem seems to be following in that in their tracks, and, and you're starting to see a little bit more from some of the other managed yes. care companies. Is this something then? Would you envision when you're speaking with employers then down the road? Hey, look, you know, it's become it's kind of fully matured here in this kind of Anthem environment, for example. Is, does that then guide some of the discussions and how you decide a benefits package? Because if you pick this carrier, in this case, let's say Anthem. It's going to come with all these other capabilities. In which case, you know, the, the way you set things up for yourselves, you know, sh should change because you don't maybe need to invest as aggressively. And, and and I guess then, secondly, when you know you speak with these startups, is uh, and you think about the digital health landscape, do you see the pairs then as a natural um, exit? I guess for a lot of these companies. Right. In the future? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, maybe I'll start with the second one because that's a quicker answer. Yes, <laughs> payers are clearly an exit. You know, the, the thing, the thing with um, with the large carriers is that they do have this appetite, but they're they they tend to be fickle, right? They want what fits and works with them. So, uh, if you look in the mental health space, well, let's let's go to telemedicine, right? 
in early days when there was you know a, a plethora of telemedicine vendors out there a few key ones got plucked off right you know we we saw uh Amwell, uh, we saw Teladoc, and we saw MD Live basically r run the table on those. Then Doctor on Demand came up, and now others have kind of come in and and supplanted in some of those cases. But those still the big three, and then and then big four um, became aligned with the big carriers. But th those weren't even acquisitions, and you know, there's now that's changed a bit. But um, some of these companies get acquired, right, or they get very strong partnerships and become allied. So that's clearly a potential exit. Uh, and I think you want a great exit if you're if you're an entrepreneur like that. So I think there's a lot of good that can come of that, which is not to say that the companies that exit into those carriers, or those payers, are then going to become the most successful leaders in the industry. That's a great exit strategy, but you know if you are owned by that payer, you're limited to that book, and and those payers don't tend to be able to promote folks into these programs as effectively as when it's done independently. That's just a fact that we've seen across these point solutions. Some do it better, some do it worse. That's a different topic. But to, to get into um, the overall question of the various different payers out there making these moves, I do think they're heading, Charles, towards trying to be differentiated through these approaches, maybe for the first time in a long time. You know, you've got uh, CVS, Aetna, um, who has this health hub strategy that promises over time to be delivering condition management and other care locally and get your meds out to you. And like that, that's a that's a very differentiated point of view that looks actually more like Amazon care than it does like additional carrier. You, you've got, um, you know, United who, you know, that, who has that as Optum, obviously, that's a machine that that's providing infrastructure and, and, and so many great solutions within it and maybe Anthem going down a similar path, but also trying to engage members different way. And then Cigna, you know, focusing on, on uh, investing into really important areas and not the least of which, you know, included ESI, right? So we're seeing these companies actually take some, take some positions in the market that they would be differentiated. I think for the for employers today, they're still they're still putting their money where their mouth is, right? They're still looking at what's going to save them costs, and most of these future plans haven't been built out yet. In some of, some of the folks more recently adding these capabilities, um, so will these technologies and, and advancements be important for employers making decisions? I think yes, uh, but there's still the basics are still there. Like you know, what what are the network rates, and um, am I going to end up end up taking a bath financially if I move to this carrier or how well they're delivering on their service. These will still continue to be really, really important until such time as these other um, added business model components add more value than those parts do. Yeah. And then obviously we'll, we'll see how this interplay plays out between payers as well as employers, mm -hmm. um, you know, which I think is, is going to be pretty fascinating over the next couple of years, given sort of the explosion and, uh, you know, new offerings coming to market and, and the potential, obviously, of a lot of these solutions to really uh, not only impact outcomes, but improve improve lives here for people. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, Steve, uh, always great to catch up with you. Uh, really appreciate you coming on to kind of giving your thoughts on, uh, on this year's uh, Future Health Conference. And uh, we look forward to have you uh, join us again on another call. And uh, thanks for being here. Charles, thanks. Great talking with you. Great. Thanks, everyone. 
Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.